God be praised. What a delicious, delightful privilege it is to um, represent the Lord Jesus in your presence. I've been blessed tremendously by Brother Ashton and Sister uh, Becca and Brother Ken, uh, Sister Tracy, the wife of Ashton, by this whole uh, congregation, those that I've seen thus far. I figured that since we're going to spend eternity in heaven, it's about time for us to get to know each other. So it's just a real joy to be here today. Uh, thank you, Brother Jeff, and to the um, ensemble and to this um, Jazz for Jesus Orchestra. What a wonderful <laughs> blessing it's been to listen to you. You know, it's very possible to sing in such a way that you have undoctrinal uh, devotion, that is, devotion with fire, uh, but it's undoctrinal. It's not solid in its theology. It's a good tune, but there's no text. And it's possible to have undoctrinal devotion. That is, uh, you can have uh, a great devotion, no doctrine, and you flip it around and have great doctrine, but no devotion, no fire, no inspiration. You're informed, but you're not inspired. Uh, today, we are informed and inspired by this uh, choral, um, anthology of voices mixed together for the praise of God. I only say this because I want you to know that you, you are blessed every Sunday to get a, a concert of praise that's biblical, that's doxological, that, if you will, gives itself to the praise of God while it inspires you. And then to know that you're not going to get a sermonic snack or a happy meal from this pulpit. I, I'm standing here and I realize that Dr. D.J. Horton gives you an appetizer and gives you a five course meal with your, uh, with your uh, regular dinner and then gives you dessert every Sunday. I hope, this is really, this is one of the, um, this is one of the richest places I think I've been in in 55 years of trying to preach. Don't take for granted that you have a preacher who stands to give you the word of God and you come here not to be a spectator but to be a worshiper. Uh, Pastor Horton asked me to tell you something about myself which is very awkward for me uh, but uh, I will just say this. Uh, for um, these past 30 years I've had the privilege of teaching um, at uh, Southern Seminary and teaching at Beeson Divinity School, but I'm not here as a teacher today. I'm here to preach. Uh, I hope that the Lord will use me in order to be what I call an exegetical escort, that is to usher the hearer by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, for the purpose of transformation. So what I hope will happen is that there will be a Trinitarian mm, ushering so that it will result in transformation, so that you and I will not leave the same, that we will leave here experiencing sanctification so that we are growing into uh, the uh, stature of the fullness of Christ and we leave, the, leave this place loving God um, more and more than we've ever loved him before. Now, I've never finished a sermon in 55 years. I have the opportunity today 
uh, to go at it twice, to preach a sermon, and just uh, what I don't get done for the 9 o'clock hour, uh, I'll try to finish at the 11. That's what I'm going to do. I've learned how to do this. I've learned how to do this. So let's, let's look at the word, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and uh, I want to read verses 1 through 12, 2 Chronicles 21 through 12. All right, I see, I see, all right. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. I want to talk about our sufficiency is of God. Our sufficiency is of God. Hear these words from the word. 2 Chronicles 21 through 12. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Along, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in the presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. It is difficult to think. It's more difficult to think about thinking. It is most difficult to think about the one that you cannot merely know by thinking about him. And that is God. Because thinking requires the sacrifice of the mind. No wonder Dr. Paul House of our university and seminary wrote in his um, Bonhoeffer Seminary Review, that how a person thinks about God determines how a person thinks about everything else. Or when you hear Blaise Pascal tell us, the heart knows the reason that reason cannot understand. That is, the heart 
knows what the mind can never understand. That's why Henry Blackaby wrote the book, Experiencing God. You've got to do more than know facts about God. You've got to experience God. And therefore, Jesus says to these pharisaical experts in John 5, 39, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, for these are they that testify of me. You may know the scripture of God, but do you know the God of the scripture? And to know the God of the scripture, you have to know him, not just in terms of the cranial matter, but the cardiological matter. We live in a um, Yahoo age, and God wants us to move to a Yada age. That's the Hebrew word for knowing, not just cognitively, but effectively, emotionally, experientially. You notice what the Lord writes through Moses in Genesis 4 and 1, and Adam knew his wife. That's the word, yada, knew. Not just knew in terms of knowledge, but in terms of experience. And we know it's true because Cain is produced from this relationship. Oh, you hear Hosea say in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not just Yahoo, but Yada in terms of experience. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, verse 37, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's a Yahoo experience. And therefore, I really do believe that God's initial desire for his people is not to make them strong, but to render them weak so that they will discover that their strength resides in him alone. Say it again. God's initial desire and design for us is not to render us strong or make us strong, but to render us weak so that we recognize that our strength resides in him alone. Strength through weakness. That's paradoxical. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. And you hear Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to follow him paradoxically. You say you want to live, you've got to die. You say you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You want to be exalted, you have to be humble. You want to be first, got to be last. You want to sit at the head of the table, you've got to sit at the end of the table. You want to be great, you have to be willing to be the servant of all. It's a paradox, strength through weakness. Or as Paul would say to us as he concludes his remarks from 1 Corinthians 11, he says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, I glory in my weakness, in my hindrances, in my insults, in my difficulties, in my persecutions. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong because God's initial desire is not to make us strong, but to rather to render us weak so that we understand that our strength resides in him alone. 
this brings us to a picture of what God does to render us strong through weakness. In 1 Corinthians or 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we have an introduction to King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, a righteous king. Notice in chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles, verses 3 and 4, Jehoshaphat is a righteous king. But that, because the Bible says that Jehoshaphat did not walk in the ways of Baal, but he walked in the ways of God and kept God's commandment. He walked in the ways of David in his earlier life before his affair at 47 years of age. He's a righteous king. He's a rich king, verse 5 and verse number 11. The Bible says in verse 5 that the people of Jerusalem and Judah brought him gifts of wealth. Verse 11, the Philistines brought him silver and the Arabs brought him livestock. He's a rich king. Verse 6, he is a king of spiritual renewal. Verse 6 says he goes up to the hills where idol worship took place and he tears down the Asherah poles, those sexualized figures of male genitalia, cuts them down because he wants to bring people back to the worship of God. He is a king of spiritual renewal. Verse 7, 8 and 9, he's a king who leads a spiritual revival. He sends priestly-like, Levitical-like figures throughout all the towns of Judah, teaching the Torah, the Bible, in their homes. You talk about home Bible study? You talk about uh, 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 life teams? You talk about meeting together to study the Word of God? He had them doing that 2,800 years ago, learning the Word of God, because he knew that you can't really have a lasting revival as long as the word is in the margins. It has to be central, not circumferential. No. And therefore, he led a spiritual revival. He had a physical army that was strong in terms of its regime. In verses 14, 18, the Bible says that verse 14, he has 300,000 soldiers. Verse 15, he's got 280,000 soldiers. Verse 16, he has 200,000 soldiers. Verse 17, he has 200,000 soldiers. Verse 18, he has 180,000 soldiers, not counting the soldiers, verse 19, in the fortified cities. That's 1,160,000 soldiers. Not bad. And then in verse 10, it says, as a result of all that God was doing, the nation surrounded Judah, were afraid to attack Judah because fear fell on them. Therefore, it looks like here is a kingdom that has been exempted from any kind of attack. Rome. Our chapter opens up, verse 1, with a secretive trifold coalition forming. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meunites, which are the Edomites, are planning on attacking Joshua. But we just read in verse 10 of chapter 17 that the that fear fell on all the surrounding nations because God was fighting for them. And yet, here is a secretive coalition being formed. That should not surprise us. 
If you and I have not met the devil lately, then we might be going the same way. This is not a picnic. This is warfare. If you are never confronted by the devil, it may mean that the devil doesn't think you're worth, you're worth investing in. Whatever you attack by the devil, it's a compliment because you are a threat to his kingdom. Here is a situation where we need to understand that God was serious when he spoke to his son and told us this. In this life, you will have tribulation. You will, not you might, but you will. But be of good cheer, I've already overcome the world. He tells us this in John 16 and 33. What is amazing about this trifold coalition is this. It's a family feud. Ammon and Moab, the descendants, the children of Lot, incestuously, yes, but still Lot's children. That's Abraham's family. Plus the Mayanites or the Edomites. Edom is Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And these are family members getting ready to attack Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. Well, brothers and sisters, always, as Michael Coleone, he says, I want to take and rephrase it, keep your enemies close. I mean, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, keep your friends really close and your family close because nobody can get to you like your family. Separation, isolation. I know it all. Parents not allowed to see their own grandchildren. I know it all. Children that you raised have turned their back on you. I know it all. They break your heart and you say, I'll never love again. Someone that you were in love with who took and broke your heart and you said, I'm canceling tomorrow. Stop the world. I want to get off. But you only spell life, L-I-F-E, with an if in the middle. You can't spell life without if. And if is there. And you trust God, even when your heart gets broken and you get disappointed, to know that God can help you to love again. So pull up the window shades. Unlock the door. Start answering your text messages. God may be sending a message to you to tell you He's able to extend life like he did Hezekiah and update your life insurance policy and give you 15 more years, as my mama would say, more years in order to go on. Three, Ammon, Moab, and Edom are planning on attacking Jehoshaphat. I've discovered this. I don't know how... um, how the Lord does it, but sometimes he'll wake me up at three or four o'clock in the morning. I mean, even before the angels get up, if you understand what I'm saying. I can't go back to sleep. I need to get up and pray, need to read, whatever it may be. Around 12 o'clock that same day, I understand. God was preparing me for the inevitable. I didn't know it, but he, he gave me a, um, a um, update on what's going to take place. So that when I had to face that trial, I was ready because of what happened at four o'clock. So let him get in. Let him disturb your rest. Let him rearrange your schedule, your day planner, because he'll turn interruptions into invitations and he'll turn hindrances into helps. 
And he will turn difficulties into that which brings you great pleasure. The Bible says the word gets to Jehoshaphat, verse 3. And Jehoshaphat is alarmed. There's another word for that. Fear. Scared. A king alarmed? Scared? Because kings are not supposed to be scared. Pastors are not supposed to be scared. Leaders are not supposed to be scared. Are they? Christians are not supposed to be scared. Are they? Oh, yes. He is alarmed. It is Karl Barth who quoted this. It's not original with him, but I think it's true. Courage is fear on his knees saying its prayers. I know there are things that trouble you. You look like everything in your world is in order. What are you fearful of? Robert, what are you fearful of? What keeps life for you um, up and down like a yo-yo? What are you fearful of? Are you fearful of what is the report going to show tomorrow since I had the biopsy last week? Are you fearful of what's going to happen to my son who has the face caught and may be sent away for 25 years? Are you fearful of a relational rift that might end up in a dissolution of marriage? Are you fearful of not being able to get a job since this pandemic that will equal what you've been making so that you can live the way you have been living for all of these years? Then let's stop. Always when people ask us, because we think we have to be super Christians. We're not told to be super Christians. We're just told to be Christians. How you doing, Robert? Highly favored. I'm too blessed to be stressed. No, someone that I know I can talk to I want to tell you, I have faith in God, but I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. And if you've got three people in your life that you can be emotionally naked before, emotionally naked before, and know that they will love you no matter what you have to say or what you're going through, you are a rich individual. No wonder James 5, 16, confess your faults, confess your needs one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so Jehoshaphat is alarmed, but he knows what to do. He calls for a prayer and fasting meeting down at the courtyard so that we can talk to God about this matter. It's an alarming matter. I remember September 11, 2001. I remember, all of us remember. And I remember the president and the former president of the United States just a day or two after this, coming to the Washington National Cathedral and sitting right next to each other, not as a Democrat and a Republican, George W. Bush and William Clinton. No, 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 no. But as believers, because party made no difference. They understood that God was not only our only hope, he was our greatest threat. We needed God. And I'm not interested today, church on, on the mill, I'm not interested in whether you are independent, whether you're Republican, or whether you're Democrat. I don't care about that. I do care about whether you are a Christocrat, a Christocrat. That's what I'm interested in because heaven doesn't know anything about an independent, a Republican, or a Democrat. 
But the name that heaven recognizes is Christ. And when you're a Christocrat, then the Bible transcends the Bill of Rights. Not that that's not important, the Bill of Rights, but the Bible. When you're a Christocrat, there is a hill higher than Capitol Hill. It's called Calvary. When you are a Christocrat, then the cross is greater than the flag. When you are a Christocrat, then God is greater than governments. And when you are a Christocrat, then you understand that there is a house greater than the White House. It's God's house. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And all of the things that I've just talked about are very important. But I'm talking about those things that will be eternal in their ramifications. Therefore, we sit together, divided in terms of our preferential choice, in terms of party, anything else. But we sit together as Christians and we give it all to God and understand that God is sovereign, as I'll talk about in just a moment. They sit next to each other. And Jehoshaphat is getting ready to lead his people in prayer. It's a time of crisis. I love the first Thursday of every May because that is the day of prayer in America. I think it's wonderful. But whatever happened to sweet hour of prayer? Not just day, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my father's throne, makes all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and often escaped the tempter snare. By thy return, sweet hour of prayer, we need more than a day of prayer. We need 364 extra days so that every day is a day of prayer. And we're not just praying when an emergency or a crisis comes. It's just normal conversation and talk with God. How would you feel as a parent if the only time your child came to you was when they needed something? And you can always tell, hey, Dad, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine, son. How you doing? Good, man. You looking good, man. Good. Thank you so much. Really like the way you got your car shiny and all. Oh, that's good, boy. That's good. Boy, good weather. And I'm just waiting. Okay. All right. Come on. Come on. Come on. And, Dad, you know, I was just thinking, here it comes. Um, you know, I ran a little short this month. House note now. What if that, if they only came to you then? God wants us to come to him for no reason except to crawl up into the cranium of God, sit on his lap and just say to him, I worship you, I praise you, I love you, you are holy, you are Don't want anything, just want to spend some time with my father. There are three rhetorical prayers that are uttered uh, in verses 6 through 12a. The first one, is a prayer that addresses the sovereignty of God. You see it in verse 6. Oh, our God, are you not the God who reigns in the heavens? You rule over the kingdoms on the earth. All power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. The rhetorical question, are you not the God of sovereignty? Of course, of course the answer is yes. You're the God of heaven. You do reign on, on the earth, and all power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Yes. That is, he's sovereign. He's in control. He's so sovereign because 
I can't figure him out. Uh, he's unfigureoutable. Please don't look in your dictionary for that. That is not a word you're going to find. It's, it's, it's a Robert Smith coined word. But you can't figure him out. He's not logical. He's supralogical. He goes beyond logic. That's why you can't just think about him and say, you know, I really know God. You got to experience the one you can never fully know. Some of you have been married 40 and 50 years. You still don't know everything there is to know about each other. I know you can finish each other's sentences. I understand that. But there's still something that resides in the element of mystery that still surprises you. That's just your mate. What about God who is from everlasting to everlasting? Look what he does in creation. The very first fiat or command he gives in that first chapter of Genesis is, let there be light. And on the first day of creation, light comes running at 186,000 miles a second. Light comes. The fourth day of creation, he says, let there be a sun in the sky. Wait a minute, God. How are you going to have light on the first day, but the sun shows up four days later? Seems to me that you would have put the sun there on the first day and then let light come on the fourth day. No, no, because sun is not the originator of light. Light doesn't come originally from the sun. And it shows us that's true. Because in the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, around verse 5, the Bible says that in that city there will be no sun, but there will be light because God is the light of the city. Light comes from God. And then God says, now I'm going to give you an expression of it. Here's the sun. But without me, there is no sun and there's nothing else. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. No wonder Carolyn James reminds us when life and beliefs collide, when she says, when faith is stripped to the bone and all our props and crutches are gone, our knowledge of God that he is good and that he's still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. When faith is stripped to the bone, that's all you have is faith. No fat, no muscles. No cartilage, no tendons, nothing else. Just bare faith. When faith is just stripped of the bone, that's all you have is faith. And all your props and crutches are gone. Health breaks down. It will. Great losses in your life. No job. You're tired. Title is gone because you're more than your title. When all those things are gone that you've been leaning on, that you and I have used to define us, our knowledge of God, that he is good, that he is still on the throne, is the only thing that's going to keep you going. When all you have is God, then you'll discover for the first time in your life that God is enough. We sing the song, I've got God and that's enough. But it's only when you have lost just about everything, if not everything, that you discover that God is enough. God is sovereign. Verse 7, 8, and 9, it's a rhetorical prayer that addresses the God who is in our history, the historicity of the eternal God, that is God who is eternal and yet steps out of time, particularly through his son, for the word is made flesh and dwells among us, John 1:14, but is involved in our history. It's true that Jehoshaphat knew that David a couple uh, centuries ago fought Goliath. Listen to Goliath bragging. 
Come here, boy. I'm going to give your body to the beast of the fields and the birds of the air. And you can hear him chuckling, talking under his breath. I mean, they have sent out a boy to do a man's job. And David says to Goliath, you uncircumcised giant who has blasphemed the name of our God. I was keeping my father's sheep and a lion approached them and I killed the lion and a bear approached them and I killed the bear. And the God who enabled me to kill the lion and the bear will enable me to kill you, you uncircumcised giants. In other words, God stepped in his history and David was able to testify and to say, past experiences will give you present confidence. Because of what God has done in your past, you can trust him to do it in your present. We have no right to not trust God based upon what God has done in our lives. Some of us are here today who were voted in high school the most likely not to succeed. Some of us are sitting here right now. The doctors thought we were not going to walk again. Not supposed to live. When you look at yourself and see where you live, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the way God has blessed you, and you came from a place that you really, really can identify on the map. You have to say Atlanta, but you're not from Atlanta. It's from some city that no one has ever heard of before. And, and look at what God has done. So if God has done it in your past, trust him to do it in your present because he's still able to do it. God steps inside of our history. But then there's a third rhetorical question that's asked. It starts with verse 10 and moves to verse 12a. But now, you can see the conjunction. Something is getting ready to change now. But now, the land in, the land in which we dwell, the Mayanites, the, the, uh, Edomite, the Mayanites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, when we were coming out of Egypt after being in bondage for 400 years, they did not want us to come through their territories and threaten to attack us. And we were going to fight back. But you said no. You told us no. You can't do it. It's relatives. They're family members. But look how they're repaying us for our kindness and not retaliating against them. They are trying, if you will, to uh, evict us from this land. God, are you going to repay them? Will you not? Verse 10a, judge them. Because we just saw in verses uh, 7 through, through 10 where Joshua in his prayer has said, are you not the God who allowed us, because you evicted these nations that live there, to come into this land and build a temple in your name? And as a result of that, whenever calamity or famine or pestilence or sword would confront us if we would come and stand before this temple that bears your name and cry out to you. You would not only hear us, but you would also save us. They're confident of that. But now they come to this great, great threat. What are you going to do? Notice, not what are we going to do, but what are you going to do? They know that vengeance is God's. He will repay. What are you going to do? See how they're repaying us? Will you not judge them God is a God of sovereignty, verse number six. God is a God who gets in our history, verse seven through nine. 
And then God is a God of covenantal conduct. Covenantal conduct. Will you not judge them? God judges not according to our preferential desires, but according to his covenantal conduct. You can hear, hear me well. You can only challenge God to do what God has promised to do based upon his word. And I wish I had time to talk about that, but that's, that's, that's it. You, you don't have anything um, to challenge God with otherwise. Uh, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I, I cling. That's why Moses could say in the 32nd chapter when God threatens to wipe out the Israelites because of their shindig down uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai when they broke the law and dancing around the golden calves. These are the gods that brought you out. God threatens to eliminate them. And Moses says, no, you can't do that, God, based upon the promise you made to Abraham that you were going to make uh, his descendants as multitudinous as the sand on the sea shore and the, the, the stars in the sky. And the Bible says that God relented, verse 14 of Exodus 32, based upon God's word. In other words, God, you must do what you said you were going to do. You can't show him your GPA. You can't show him how much you have in the bank. You can't show him how good looking you are. That doesn't move God. What moves God is when you say to God what God's word says. And God is a God of veracity and a God of truth. Covenantal conduct. The book of Judges is all about that. It's when the children of Israel have been so wicked that God allows the Moabites or the Philistines or the Canaanites or whoever it is to take and make them um, uh, tenants and they become landlords and to punish them. But the Bible says after they have punished them, God raises up a judge, a military ruler, who will serve as a deliverer for them and deliver them from the Philistines, etc. You know why? Because God says in his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the one who blesses you, I'm going to bless. And the one who curses you, I'm going to curse. So he's always acting according to covenantal conduct. My job is to know his covenant, to know his word, so that I can say back to God what he has already written in his word. That's it. And so... God will judge them, but it's covenantal conduct judgment based upon divine fairness. I'm glad God doesn't give me what I deserve in terms of fairness. It's all about his grace. Now, let me move very quickly to the three acknowledgments. Verse 12b, 12c, and 12d. 12b, we have no might. Now, Joseph, how can you say that? You've got 1,160,000 soldiers. We just added them up back in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. And you say you don't have any might? 1,160,000 soldiers? No, Robert. I've got military might, but I don't have the kind of might I need. I've got to come to understand. We need more, and we do need defense, domestic and foreign but we need more than bullets and bombs. We need more than planes. We need gods. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord's. And whatever you have is not enough. You and I need God. We have no might. That's really what happens in 2 Kings chapter 6 
where uh, the servant of Elisha, Elijah's going to heaven, comes out and he looks at the mountainside when, when they are stationed, he and his master at um, Dothan, he sees the, the hillside surrounded by Syrian soldiers. He knows that they are totally outnumbered. We have no might. That's what he tells Elisha. Second of all, he says in verse 12c, we don't know what to do. That's exactly in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse, uh, verse number 15. He says the same thing. He says, Elisha, master, what shall we do? Have you ever been to a place where you didn't know what to do? I don't care how many degrees you have. You did not know what to do. And what do you do when you don't know what to do? And I think God wants to put us in that position where we don't know what to do. We don't have any other options. We tried all kinds of services, and I believe in professional services, but we don't know what to do. Third, 12D, but our eyes are upon you. Mm. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Our eyes are upon you. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see. All he sees is the negative, the Syrian soldiers and the chariots. When this servant's eyes were open, he saw angelic beings of fire in chariots of fire with horses of fire. Because not optically, that's not, it's the third eye that was open. The eye of faith. And he saw that those who were with them were more than those who were against him. I wish you and I could just understand that we are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. If you understood, if you could just see the angelic assistance that's there, that God has you. Your front, your back, got the keys, as I would say, in that service. And when he opened his eyes, he saw all that God had planned for him. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus became weak. We have no might. He was so weak that he couldn't even carry the weight of the cross to the cross. Weak. Had to have the assistance of a black man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the rest of the way. God, who was omnipotent, became impotent. We have no might. We don't know what to do. Now, Jesus, of course, knew what to do. He knew why he came into the world, but the question was, what is he going to do? There are no angels at the cross. Angels, when he was born, the angel of the Lord, with the multitude of the heavenly host, said, glory be to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Angels in the wilderness, in Mark 1.13, after he had gone uh, three rounds with the devil, the Bible says an angel was sent there to minister to him. Angels in the garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, verse 43, there he is after he has prayed until sweat like great drops of blood fell from his brow. An angel was there to strengthen him. Angels at the resurrection. When he rose from the dead, the women came and they saw two angels in white and they asked, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, as he said. And angels at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Uh, that word that is given from them is, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken away in you like matter will come again. But there is no angel at the cross. What will he do? And what do you do when you ask the Father, why have you forsaken me? What do you do when you're at the cross and God doesn't assist? And God forsakes as he did Jesus. 
you wait around for three days. Because Sunday morning came. I like to read biographies, and some of them get long, 600, 700 pages. Every now and then, I'm up to about page 350, and I just get anxious. I want to know, how's this thing going to turn out? And I cheat. I flip over to the last two pages, and I see how it's turning out, and I can read the rest with a sense of comfort. I cheated! On Friday, I skipped over to Sunday morning, and I found out he got up from the grave with all power in his hand, and that he's coming back again. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, then life is worth living because he lives. And I've got two seconds to go, and I'm done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for allowing us to experience weakness that we might uh, discover that our strength resides in you alone. We pray even now that you give us a more clear vision of who you are and whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen.